It is not good, obviously, that this is happening within what should be a trusted circle of likely military intelligence. But it also indicates that there may be a broader problem. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. There has been a lot of news about Russia and the war in Ukraine in the last few weeks, from the recent revelation that intelligence documents have been leaked to the Wall Street Journal reporter who's being wrongfully detained in Russia. So with everything that's going on, we're going to talk to my good friend Molly McHugh about these developments and how they can shape the war. Molly is a writer and researcher, as most of you know, of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, and other publications. And she's the lead author of a newsletter called greatpower.us. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and one of the only people I've ever been to a war zone with. Hi, Ooh. Molly. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello. Welcome back. How you doing? Uh, good. Yeah? I guess. <laughs> Okay, so we recorded this conversation last week before we knew the identity of the leaker. So after that news broke, we decided to sit down again and discuss what we know now. Last Thursday, FBI agents arrested Jack Teixeira, an Air Force National Guard airman who has been charged with leaking the documents. Teixeira had access to the documents as part of his job in cyber defense operations with the Air National Guard. And the New York Times is reporting that based on charging documents, Teixeira isn't being accused of acting as a foreign agent, which would mean stealing documents to aid a foreign government or enemies of the United States, or as a whistleblower, which would be sharing secret information with news media to educate the public about some sort of at least perceived corruption. According to the reporting from the New York Times and the Washington Post, his goal was to share the documents with a small circle of online friends in a Discord chat where they discussed games, guns, and shared memes, including racist and anti-Semitic slurs. We're still not entirely sure if or how the racism or anti-Semitism impacted the motive here, although the group did use the title Bear versus Pigs in their discussion about the war in Ukraine. The Times is reporting that Teixeira shared top-secret documents and risked spending 15 years in prison to impress some people online. Molly, how does the motive here shape how you see and understand this leak and the broader impact it can have on national security concerns? I mean, it does fit with what we were seeing, just knowing from the documents that the stuff had been online for a long time. It seemed to be specific to this one group, which then eventually was sort of set free into the wilderness of uh, online things. Um, So it does fit in that sense of like, it didn't seem like a person who was doing this specifically for the purpose of whistleblowing, of transmitting it to a foreign power of XYZ things. Um, but it seemed to be, um, you know, and what he, what we, I think, can now say with a fair degree of certainty, and there may be secondary motives we don't understand, um, that he stole the stuff beginning at the, around the time of the beginning of the new phase of the war in Ukraine, and has been sharing it with his little online bro group since, um, in order to inflate his status in the group. And I think he's probably not the only one in the group who was lying about who he was. He was portraying himself as like this super secret operator, you know, uh, type dude. He's a guy who's never been to war. And I'm not, you know, kudos to everyone in non-kinetic jobs in the U.S. military and National Guard. 
Um, but this 21-year-old was trying to portray himself as something he wasn't to inflate his status within the group. Um, I think others in the group were lying about who they were in terms of foreign identities and other things. So who the hell knows who was actually looking at any of this stuff? Um, but the fact that this kid comes from this universe of thinking and stuff where your access to secret U.S. classified documents is how you're going to build your profile online because that's the reality you care about more uh, is a little bit mind-boggling and terrifying, but not actually that unusual a thing in this day and age. Not excusing any of it. Um, what he was charged with, uh, you know, was essentially retention and transmission of uh, secret classified national defense information, um, which does seem to indicate at least thus far that he did have access to this stuff. He wasn't stealing it. He was just keep, you know, taking it off base, keeping it for his own purposes, sending it to others. Um, but uh, I, I, again, I, I think this was probably the earliest charge on the charging document. It listed one date of this having happened, which is probably like the, the closest security cam footage they could find of him shoving paper into his pocket and walking out of the base with it. Um, I'm sure there's uh, going to be additional charges. Um, what those are, though, we don't know. Um, but this is, I hope, uh, I, I think the in general, there has been a lot of recommendation from people who work vaguely in my community of information-y things um, to the Pentagon, to the military, to different branches of the military, to educate our guys better about this stuff, like how they are exposed online with what they post, how they are approached online, and how they are targeted for uh, sort of recruitment, collection of information, other things. Um, some of that is happening. Um, there have been sort of one-page briefers produced, especially on be aware when you're on Discord, the servers where this stuff was happening, not to do these kinds of things. Uh, you know, if you're on this app, like if you're using Tinder abroad, be careful about what you're posting about yourself, things like that. So um, there has been some education about this, but I think we need to do a better job with our servicemen and women uh, of providing this kind of education, making it clear what the consequences are for um, transmitting information, whether it be actual documents or just the information itself to others. Um, and I think particularly in this younger group, if the vast majority of the U.S. military is under the age of 30, which it is, which is how any military works, right? You depend on young soldiers who then go on and do other things. Um, we're recruiting now heavily from things like Discord, from esports competitions, uh, places where we can acquire young people who are motivated with the skills that we need in a modern army, which includes, you know, people who can pilot drones, uh, people who do cyber things, people who do information things. We need all of these skill sets. Um, the military has been recruiting from these venues. Um, but then what you are getting is teenagers who have been indoctrinated with this edgelord culture uh, of anti-gay, anti-Semitic, anti-whatever, anti-everything um, mindset. Um, where militia cool is now like kind of a thing. And we need to be aware of, of how we track that, that we take it seriously as a potential internal threat um, and that we're doing a better job with how we secure information um, in our own environment. But I have a real concern about the mindset that this kid represents. And even though he is a grown up, I'm going to call him a kid because he made stupid kid decisions. Cozy. On this. 
21. He's yeah. so he's, I mean, he started stealing the stuff when he was yeah. 1920. Like, yeah, because this, this was, as we, as we talk about later in the episode, this stuff had been out there for a while. We didn't catch it immediately. Yeah. Right. And that, that, well, is, that in itself is a, is a separate concern. So he started posting it in February, 2022. So before yeah. around the time of the, the new invasion in Ukraine, um, and was posting it consistently throughout the year. Um, at some point, got tired of retyping the documents, started posting the, you know, the specific pictures of documents themselves, um, which is, in fact, a much worse thing. But um, sometime in that timeline, uh, someone in the group started posting that to another server for the same purpose, as far as we know, which was inflating his own you know, in online profile as an yeah. edgelord in that group which was a much bigger group and somewhere from, and the name of that underage, I believe teenager has been posted somewhere um, in the various reporting Uh, seems to be just some kid in California. Um, But somewhere from those groups, others then started because this was no longer a controlled environment. There was, there was less trust in terms of this, you know, the Jack had been saying, don't post this stuff. It's so secret, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, from there it got to another group and somewhere in the process of this stuff starting to disseminate uh, a well-established group of Westerners pretending to be Russians uh, who were a pro-Russian um, information channel. Uh, this woman who identified herself as part of a collective that calls itself Donbass Devushka um, that was pretending to be Russian Jew descended somethings uh, who have been posting about Russia and the war in Ukraine since 2013, 2014, Mm. raising money off of this idea. They run a podcast um, that's all this pro-Russian stuff, claiming to be a Russian-descended blah, blah from Lugansk. Uh, In fact, she was a now-retired, I hope, or or forcibly retired, unclear, um, naval officer uh, who was in Washington State. Um, who U.S. Was doing naval this stuff. officer. U.S. naval officer who was in Washington <sighs> State. Um, the guy, some of the the NAFO guys online who have been consistently going through and documenting who a lot of these Russian propagandists are, um, had done a post detailing some of what this individual slash group has done, identifying her by name, um, and that was picked up in the Wall Street Journal reporting this weekend that that was actually the thing that kind of grabbed this thing from a group and moved mm-hmm. it over to the Russian Telegram channels, which makes sense. Yeah. And which is what going to happen when you take stuff and put it online. But I think that's the, this is a really good example of things that we've seen happening since the like release the memo thing blew up way back in the day, which is other groups. Uh, oh, this was, um, I don't even remember which memo it was at this point, but this was this campaign right after Trump got elected um, when all these right-wing uh, congressmen started saying, uh, started posting these campaigns about releasing some supposedly secret memo about something. Um, but Russian bots sort of found it and put it online and exploded it. And, um, you know, was it uh, was it something they made up? No, but they understand the opportunity in information, right? And I think this... It's this whole cycle of things, understanding disinformation in the online universe is not just a one-way street. The Russians use it for collection, identification. Um, they're very good about watching our, our discussions and narratives to look for opportunities in what they do. Um, and in this case, this kid gave them like a big giant pile of things, um, which is a 
fucking disaster. <laughs> so there's one other thing we also learned between then and now, which is that there are just under a hundred special forces military members from NATO countries on the ground in Ukraine. Still uh, not sure that's verified. NATO has denied it. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the 14 U.S. troops were on the ground to monitor military aid, um, and he said the troops are quote, not fighting on the battlefield. So this to me seems like an important detail, even if it's, even if it shouldn't be an important detail, it, it is new information that U.S. troops are actually on the ground in Ukraine when that has been the refrain uh, that we are, that we are denying, that we're denying any U.S. troops directly on the ground in Ukraine, even if they're part of uh, a NATO deployment. What does this mean for the war, is it significant that this is now revealed? I mean, is it significant? Sure. Uh, what are they probably doing? Our guys are probably back by Lviv, with where the where our training base has been, which is you know twenty kilometers from the Polish border. So, um, uh, is it? Imp- I mean, look, is it important that we're there? Yes, we should have been there much much yeah, earlier. Agreed. All of this makes it much easier. Um, there are other. Uh, I think other NATO forces have been doing other things in different ways. Um, I do think that this line of we are not combatants is maintained. Um, so I don't think any of that is different. And no one is talking about uh, sending NATO forces to fight the war. They are there in the capacity of support, which basically they've been doing on FaceTime this whole time, mm-hmm. right? So like, mm-hmm. you know, is it better that they're there directly and less stuff is getting transmitted over electrons? Absolutely. Um, and I do think it's an important sig- symbol and signal about where we are in the fighting um, and the kinds of support that we're giving to Ukraine. Um, but this is important. I mean, we have comm systems. We have other things yeah. that it just is easier if we are there as a transmission point, if nothing else. Um, so so I think it's good. I'm yeah. sure other people will oh, yeah, I, I, go nuts I, about it. But just to say, the Russians have been saying we've been there all along. So it right. doesn't change the like, right. is it a provocation factor? Because they've been claiming we've been doing this the whole time anyway. Right. Okay. All right. Let's get back into the episode. Thanks, Molly. Let's get into it. A couple of weeks ago, we'll talk about the docs first. The New York Times reported that U.S. intelligence documents, including some that are marked top secret, were circulating on social media. And officials are saying that most of the documents are real, but that some have been altered. These are photos of printed briefing documents that have been posted on platforms like Twitter and 4chan and Telegram, but they've been on Discord, the messaging platform, since early March. Let's start with the basics. What's in these documents? Um, It's a variety of stuff uh, that, as you mentioned, is printed out documents from sort of the daily brief uh, that is like accumulated intelligence stuff that goes to uh, a bunch of people, but the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. By the daily brief, you mean the president's daily brief or PDB? Uh, it's not for the, as far oh. as I know, this is not the presidential daily brief. It's okay. the one that goes to the, to the, it's on the Pentagon side. So Got the it. one that goes to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Okay. So it comes from all the different agencies. There's statistics and other things. Um, but, you know, it's... Uh, uh, as noted, you know, sort of top secret, non-foreign, meaning not for foreign eyes, um, which is not a particularly highly classified thing. This is a widely read brief. It goes to a huge number of people. 
um, uh, department heads and, you know, people who are keeping track of Europe, people who are keeping track of other things. Um, so it's not, it's not a document that reveals incredibly sensitive, generally speaking, is not a document that reveals incredibly sensitive information about collection methods or sources, things like that. It's just sort of the digest of stuff that you need to see every day to keep on top of the crap you're doing, right? So um, I think in that respect, it's uh, it's not the worst thing that could have happened. <laughs> I yeah. just think in some aspects, I think it's the extremely low-tech nature of this that's wigging everyone out because mm. some person, like, printed these things out and folded them up because you can see the folds, like, uh. like and, like, folded it in quarters and shoved it in their pocket and walked out the door of whatever agency they're working in with them and then sat in their car because you can see it in some of the photos, like, taking pictures of the photo of those documents, like, on the seat of the car, right? <laughs> and then posting them to whatever <laughs> fucking horseshit. And you're just like, what? Like, what are you doing? And so it's that yeah. weirdness of, like shit someone inside the system and granted this is again a wide range of people yeah uh did this uh, i think the other thing about this that is uh raising hackles and made the pentagon go ballistic when they were notified of this from not within our system from an ally um is that it was online for more than a month somewhere before somebody else saw it and was like yo, bro, you think uh, there's these things that are yours. Like, have you seen them? And it wasn't until they crossed over to, I think, on Twitter. Like, there were a few posts on Twitter that somebody else saw them and was like, have you guys seen this? Um, and in all aspects of that, it's like a giant fail. I think the biggest piece is there's been a lot of debate about this, especially in the context of uh, the most recent phase of the Ukraine war, but also other things like how well are intelligence agencies understanding and using open source intelligence information? And uh, do we have enough of our own resources pointing in those directions, like looking at everything every day um, in the now very dispersed different channels in right. which information is propagating? So it's not just Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know, it's all of these new social media things, it's these gamer things, Discord and whatnot. Um, there's a lot of different uh, channels in which stuff is being spread. Uh, and the fact that nobody saw it is sort of a big giant fail in many respects. So it just, it's not, again, it's not the end of the world in terms of what it was and what was out there. Um, but it's sort of, it. it's still like, for me, is like a big, yeah. you know question mark flashing over the head of like do we really sloppy. still not have a room full of 20 year old captains whose job it is to like just search the Make internet sure that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like look at things and be like hey that says top secret on it maybe it shouldn't be online like apparently we don't and um that's surprising uh because we've yeah. gotten better about a lot of the stuff than we used to be um, but as part of it is still an authorities issue. Like, are we allowed to do X, Y, Z things or only to do, you know, these yeah. other channels? Um, but I think for me, that's a, that's still yeah. a, a, yeah. Question, a big question. Yeah. Okay. So the information that everyone is, um, very concerned about, what is it, what does it actually contain? And what is the, I guess we should go over what, what the documents actually contain that is serious, that is quite sensitive. And then what has been the impact or what's the potential impact of this information now being known? What's happened? Yeah, I think the, um, I think we know what the goal of this leak is, right? And like, 
you, whoever it is that, I mean, and again, we don't know the, the Pentagon has said or notioned toward, they believe this is either a Russia linked or Russian friendly thing that has posted these things. Um, that can mean a lot of things. It can mean like an individual person who has inclinations on the same page as it could mean a recruited asset of, it can mean a lot of different things. So I think we still don't really know. And there's a lot of questions about the, you know, the chain that this happened. They should be able to figure it all out because anybody who accessed that document, there will be a record of mm, like yeah. what it was. This should be a simple, straightforward investigation. But, um, uh, so I think, uh, it's sort of this, we know what the goals are, assuming it is a Russia-aligned thing. It's to create division in the alliance the same way that the Snowden stuff did, where it was revelations that um, we spy on our allies as well as our adversaries, which is not a revelation because everybody does it. <laughs> like, absolutely everybody wants additional information other than from official channels on everybody else. Um, and, uh, but it's clearly meant to be divisive. Uh, it is meant to create problems. It is meant to create hesitance, caution, stall, uh, re-questioning as we go into the spring and toward the summer about how we are supporting Ukraine and the direction in which the fighting there is moving. Um, and, uh, uh, that I think is the biggest potential challenge, because um, because Ukraine was preparing for a major counteroffensive yes. and these documents there's absolutely nothing important exposed in these documents and okay. i would just point out again this is for me this is there's nothing important exposed um for i think the the thing to remember is this is stuff from our stuff like the the documents that were posted are from our analytics of things okay this is not ukrainian war plans this okay. is our understanding of what may happen uh, as noted consistently in the press uh, and from officials making statements constantly, the Ukrainians don't share stuff with us because they don't want it to get leaked and mm. put on time, uh, put online, or in the New York Times or whatever. Yeah, because um, of stuff like this because happening. Basically, every time they give us something, the next day someone hands it to a reporter, and it ends up in the interweb. And um, they're very cautious about that. And even within Ukraine, obviously, there's extremely tight lines of control about who actually knows what the plan is, what the potential plans mm. are. Um, not because there's not trust, but in a very resistant cell operational yeah. concept, um, you know, you want to have as few people as possible knowing the whole thing because then it's much less likely that pieces of it could be exposed if people are captured, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think it's important to note that this is our information, not okay. Ukrainian information okay. that has been exposed. There are a few instances in what has been analyzed uh, and published uh, in various reporting so far of uh, sort of, you know, sort of not salacious, but sort of like juicy tidbits from allies, like the thing about the Korean munitions, um, which we all, it was, we all sort of knew it anyway. Uh, South Korea has been uh, supportive of what's happening in Ukraine. Um, and has sold and has become a major weapons supplier in many respects for Europe um, because they're quite obviously sophisticated at how they make electronics and other things. Um, so, I mean, the the Poles have uh, and a few other countries in Europe have been purchasing South Korean armored vehicles and uh, now munitions. And there was quite a large munitions purchase uh, by the Poles from South Korea. And it was very clear that this was 
South Korea does not want to pass munitions directly to Ukraine, mm. but is happy to sell them to mm. Poland, knowing that they're knowing just, where they're going. <laughs> there's going to be a very brief <laughs> right. detour, you know, into <laughs> Ukraine. It was a lot of internal debate for South Korea. You know, everybody has to make decisions about these things, knowing what the potential costs could be with China, with Russia, with other stuff. Um, but uh, many of our Asian allies, uh, our Asian Pacific uh, region allies, have been really good about supporting Ukraine, Australia, the South Koreans, the Japanese in their own ways. Um, so there was things like that where it's like kind of knowing that detail that like the South Koreans really agonized about this and figured out a way to do it where they felt legally good but not directly exposed. Like, does it matter? Sure, it matters. And I'm sure they're pissed about it. But Everybody kind of knew this anyway because it was already reported in public. Okay. So I don't really see in what we've seen so far. And again, there could be, yeah, you know, one could piles be forgiven. We haven't know, seen yet, by, but by, by reading the headlines, one could be forgiven this that my, this was a nuclear bomb of a leak. This is my <laughs> problem know? with the reporting, and you know, God bless all the reporters who have to cover all these things and who have done. Uh, a consistently pretty good job in the context of this new phase of fighting in Ukraine of really showing some of the important issues, places where allies yeah. have been critical, places where Ukraine has done amazing things. It's hard to report on this stuff, and you want this to be this big salacious story because it's a better story. If you're a but this outlet. is not yeah. Snowden. And I just think, like again, there could be stuff we don't know about. Maybe this person was a secret mastermind downloading buckets of things. Um, uh, maybe they did exfiltrate tons of data on a hard drive and are now printing things and trying to make it look low tech. I don't. So there could be more. We don't sure. know. But I mean, the thing about Snowden that was devastating was one, the amount, but two, the fact that he didn't just take information, he took tools and he exposed the tool, like the listening tools yes. that the NSA had and how they worked and, you know, how they collected. And that was the thing that was crushing and is still an issue in many. Like we're still dealing with the consequences of this within within the alliance, uh, and the way that these were put out into the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is not Snowden. And I think I'll just I'll, I'll read like yeah. one little quote from uh, also friend of politicology, obviously John Cipher, former CIA uh, yeah. uh, agent. But um, uh, <laughs> what he posted about this, I think either today or yesterday was. You know, the sky is not falling. Our most sensitive collection doesn't make it into documents like this. It's also hard for Russia to make changes. We are still dealing with uh, damage from the snow from Snowden a decade on. Just give Ukraine what it's asking for. And I think that's the best summary of what I've seen in this so far. It's not Snowden. It's not great. Like, it's obviously not great that someone with access to this stuff is being a dick about it. But um, uh, and thinks that this is a good way to try to influence U.S. decision-making, uh, decision-making on Ukraine in general, um, that they are obviously not ideologically aligned with uh, where we are yeah. as a nation, yeah. but with probably the other side, or at least in an isolationist bent. Um, yeah. That's unnerving and very disconcerting, but it is not so far like the breaking open of our intelligence The substance system. of it is, yeah. has not been. And yeah. the substance isn't that yeah. important. Right. And it's not you know, Ukrainian troop movements. Again, the stuff is already six weeks old for the most part. Uh, you know, it, is it a little bit more detail on casualties? The biggest discussion has been uh, this thing about various munition stockpiles and what Ukraine has, what they rely on, the fact that they're going to run out of things if people don't supply them with more. But again, this is not that wasn't really revelatory. News. Maybe specific numbers of, okay. you know, this particular rocket and the, okay, whatever. 
But was from it in- the beginning, this has been the thing that we know there's a very limited pipeline of stuff to shoot. Ukraine yeah. is shooting a lot. It's a third as much as Russia in most cases. Um, but they're shooting a lot more than we expected anyone would have to shoot. Um, uh, and we need more things. Yeah. And we've been, we, the West, we, the Alliance supporting Ukraine writ large have been extremely slow in deciding to do something about this problem we've known about since October, 2021. Mm. Um, and that's not great. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I think this is the biggest thing that's. The noise is being made about this, but it's not new. It's just if you actually look at it, it's like, oh, yeah, it's actually real, and we yeah. still haven't done anything about yeah. it. Yeah. Was any of it news to Russia? I would assume no. Um, they'll play it up sure. in, in a lot of different ways. Um, but I don't think any of it is revelatory. The reason that they're sitting there lobbing surface-to-air missiles at Ukrainian apartment buildings, which is obviously not how you shoot those. Um, The reason they're using what they have, basically in, like, trebuchet fashion, it's like, we'll just lob this shit into Ukraine, and it'll blow things up, and entire landscapes will be devastated, and who cares? Like, maybe eventually they'll stop. Is this idea that if they keep grinding, we will stop supporting Ukraine faster than they run out of things? And that calculation has not changed and I think, as Cypher noted, Russia does not have fast capacity to make operational adjustments quickly. So anything they've seen in this is not really changing the strategy of just grinding, 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 grinding. Um, they don't really have a but, different approach to bring to this. But playing up the fact that there was a leak in the first place yes. obviously suits their purposes because it demoralizes American support. It's honestly, this is, it reminds me so much of the Podesta email leak, right? Where like, okay, I also found it fun to read salacious internal emails between the Podesta brothers about their mom's risotto recipe or whatever, you know, like, sure, it was super fun. But was there anything in there that was like, actually, no, it's just that you could say, oh, there were 33,000 leaked emails or whatever. And everybody assumed that there was stuff in there that was bad. And like, you know, it's just, and it's the same with these documents for now is like the, the fact of the leak. And again, I think the low techiness of it feels very cold war. It does. Like it's yeah, in my pocket. It I snuck that. it out, you yeah. know, and I had a little camera in my pen and I took <laughs> pictures. Um, it feels not good and it is not good obviously that this is happening from within what should be a trusted circle of likely military intelligence but um uh but and the russians will play that up absolutely but it also indicates that uh there may be a broader problem of people who have access to these things who are passing on information um but we don't know that like we just can um, we just don't know can i go down a brief detour for sure. a second at, at the risk of you taking me out back and, and, uh, <laughs> never uh, because you brought up Snowden never. and I just got to know, uh, don't do it wrong. <laughs> don't do the Snowden as a hero thing or I will absolutely throw you okay, out right but, now. Okay. But maybe not a hero, but, um, Snowden is trader period as a story. Buying on Americans is also not great. And like, no, <laughs> I, I, the twisting watched, of motivation yeah. is the problem where like maybe you in yeah. fact believe spying on Americans isn't great and he'll not of course consent. and he'll of, uh, uh, yeah. I'm not arguing that spying on Americans is great. Uh, it is not. But um, maybe you as the guy who is aware of these things 
as a very low-level contractor or whatever, uh, is unnerved by this fact of the thing, but being duped into exporting all of the other things and then like weakening your own nation by exposing all of these things and the tools in terms of dividing the alliance and then going in and, and enabling an adversary in all of these respects and continuing to be a propaganda tool for them, like, sorry, fail, like okay. total fail. So if you actually believe in what you're saying, yeah. expose the thing and go to jail for the five years and come out as a hero. Okay. And he didn't do that. Right? I'm with you, I'm with <laughs> so, you on that. I don't agree. end up in Russia because you're a dummy. Yeah, I agree on that point. And everything that happened afterward, I obviously, yeah, I'm not a fan of his conduct. However, the revelation of the fact that we were spying on Americans still are, uh, seems, spies on everybody. seems worthy of a really robust debate. Elon Musk country. is also and spying on Americans. And sure, but he's not the government. Sure. That. Right. Sure. Like, you know, is it worthy of robust debate? Yes. Uh, are we already like, despite having absolutely no data privacy of any kind yeah, in this country, that's a, yeah. are we already in a slightly better position than many of our European peers? Yeah. <laughs> like if you watch any <laughs> British cop show, it's all they have to do is be like, Hmm, we think this person was standing in the same room as this person. We're going to access all of their financial records and every yeah. phone call they've ever made in history and where their car has gone and where they, it's like, and it's like, they're just totally allowed to do all of that. Cause it's just, the laws are different. Uh, so do I think that, we should have full surveillance powers on our citizens with a low threshold. No, no, I do not, obviously. Uh, but I think that the fact that Snowden was, it seems certainly, recruited for this person for this purpose as a vulnerable target, uh, and and duped into doing all of these other yeah. things that have had extreme cost. Okay, um, I can see the nuance. I can see the nuance. It was a project. Um, like it wasn't like. Yeah. You know, this wasn't in in a very Chelsea Manning like situation. It was a vulnerable I think person that was who a was different situation. I think that different. was worse actually, it's much way worse. worse and yeah. way more coercive, yeah. but um uh these people are targeted and yeah. this is why it's like they learn about how these things happen and there are proper channels through which to go to communicate these things. And those proper channels would never sure. have. And you could go to the Hill because there's plenty of allies on the Hill who agree with you that surveillance on Americans is true. bad. Like there's just true. so many ways to do this within the system that don't involve Glenn Greenwald and the Russians. And when you fail to try to do those things before okay. running yeah. to an adversary, yeah. I'm just not going to be on your yeah. side. Yeah. <laughs> Even when your initial point may have been vaguely correct. Yeah. Like, it's just not. Do you think that the read the sorry? I know this is a complete detour from Ukraine, but I'm just curious. Do you think that the um, the manner in which he went about this and then his conduct since has actually stepped on the possibility of a real robust conversation about spying Americans and probably he got it around it differently because we haven't had any. There have been zero real repercussions from that revelation internally. There have been, um, and I do think there have been improvements. Again, not knowing as yeah. obviously a person not inside the right. listening mechanism. <laughs> right. um, I do think there have been improvements in approvals, how these things are done, um, the kinds of information that are needed or that you're allowed to listen to. But like, it's it's again this this challenge, and I'm not making excuses for things that are obvious violations, but it's this challenging environment now of the line between domestic and foreign, American yeah. and non-American. Yes is so freaking blurry it's and hazy barely exists um yeah that 
it it is a really challenging basket of things and uh we need to be competitive in how we are in that space uh of collection and analysis but obviously especially given some of the challenges we've had with people who have been elected and how they have sought to abuse these tools um we need to be always mindful of the internal watchdog aspect yeah. of how we go about this and, okay. and analyze ourselves. Absolutely, I want to bookmark this because I yeah, think we should that, come back to I actually think there's with a, people who with, know more about. Yeah, it exactly. Than me. <laughs> I think I think a roundtable about this specific topic. I mean, I'm I'm very interested in it. Okay, back to Ukraine yes. and the documents. Okay, so the, so so really, so beyond Ukraine, the fact that the leak happened. Um, how could this, is this, will this change um, the way allies share information with the U.S.? Like outside of the, has there been a lot of increased sensitivity as a result of this leak? Not necessarily information in it, but the fact that it happened. And The main change that we have visibility on so far is that less people have access to the daily brief than used to, right? Like less people can click on it and the thingy, the server thingies and actually see it. Um, these are, again, because these are not particularly sensitive collected facts, it, uh, it had broad access. And I think they've sort of peeled away layers of that in terms of, yes, it's useful for more people to read it, but yeah. right now, fuck that. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Turn, turn the system down a yeah. little. So I think that has been an immediate consequence. In terms of with our allies, again, there's nothing in there that is... I think, there, again, there was, like, one story from a UK thing where, you know, basically the Russians almost shot down one of their spy planes that was trying to observe Crimea. Um, but again, this is not, it's stuff that has been not maybe broadly reported on, but known in the broader yeah. space of, especially all of the really great guys who watch open source intelligence yeah. uh, on aviation and ships and stuff over the Black Sea. Um, there's a lot of information that is widely that is available. available. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think... <laughs> To me, the biggest challenge with, I don't think it's going to change how, certainly Five Eyes, like the the core of our intelligence alliance, I don't think it's going to change how this stuff is being shared. It continues to build wariness from the Ukrainian side to us, but that's not new or different or ill-informed or because they don't trust us. It's that they just understand, like, operationally. There is no way to keep information from leaking. Right. You have to keep stuff yeah. really locked down. I mean, so so the documents had information about Russia and Ukraine, South Korea, and Israel, right? Uh, there was some Israel stuff too. There was yeah. some Israel stuff too, and you know, their confirmation that the U.S. also spies on our enemies and our allies. We've talked about that. So the question is whether you know, especially an ally like Israel, now starts to get very, you know, in, even more sensitive than it already is about sharing information with us. Are they still an ally? So many questions to ask, but um, especially if they're going to sell shit to the Russians, which they're they're doing. So in a conflict. Yeah. There's that. You want to explain what you mean by that? No, I mean, Israel uh, and in in a way that's totally understandable. And I as not an Israel expert, but just from having observed how they have burned many of the countries I have worked in many times. uh, It's very Israel first foreign policy and military and defense cooperation, uh, which is understandable given history, existence, how they must survive. Uh, Sure, fine. They are a major arms producer and supplier um, of both 
actual physical arms and more things on the more technological side. Like Pegasus. Uh, for example, uh, all these things, some of those things are like a half a step removed from like officialdom, but like, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. there's a whole lot of problematic things. Israel sells stuff to just about everyone, anyone who is going to pay. <laughs> They'll ship you the stuff. Except a bit on Ukraine, where they've been not so forward-leaning on wanting to provide things to Ukraine, despite a lot of Ukrainian outreach to uh, this respect, um, but have seemed more willing to consider giving things to Russia because of the deeper relationships that have been built there over the past 20 years. Um, Do we know why exactly the reticence to provide assistance to Ukraine? I think it has more to do with uh, some of the relationships built with Russia, especially the financial relationships mm -hmm. and like in a vastly simplistic way uh purposeful russian influence operations since the fall of the soviet union to there are many uh obviously uh russian jews other jews but like sort of oligarchic jews from the russian sphere who have created partnerships outreach influence in israel um, and used that to cultivate a softness toward mm -hmm. Russia, which, especially in sort of the Obama administration, when there was great frustration with American policy during the Trump administration, where everything just became everybody do whatever you want everywhere because mm -hmm. it's all crazy now, there was a lot of direct outreach between uh, Israel and Moscow, particularly on solving problems in the Middle East. It used to be people mm. would come to Washington to yeah. talk and solve problems and get permission and yeah. not so much anymore. Not so, so much anymore. Yeah. And that's a really not good Especially shift. when you see China <laughs> brokering, you know, some, something between the Saudis and whatever Syria, it is like, that they're doing. Like yes. The recent summits, the recent sort of spate of announcements that have nothing to do with us or that we were not included in just demonstrates this idea that we're in a multipolar world now, not just a yes. unipolar And world. people want to participate in right. this, like, yeah. Right. In the same way Macron goes to yeah. France and comes back saying he doesn't want to be an American vassal, like, okay, fine, y'all <laughs> y'all pick your sides, and if you decide that China is going to be the great defender of European sovereignty, good on you. Let me know yeah. how that turns out. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, I do think there has been more outreach between Israel and Moscow in a way that, like, more closely parallels sort of Erdogan and Turkish policy. So it's very quote unquote strategic depth. Like yeah. we will do outreach with everyone in the best thing for us. And we're not going to like yeah. filter that for more traditional partnerships, alliances, whatever. It's been much more cutthroat in that respect. So you can either decide that that's smart and you support Israel on that, or you can decide that that's not great uh, as some of us have done. Um, and seeing sort of the instability in Israeli politics, <laughs> yep. you can understand the not great aspects yep. of, of how some of these things have unrolled as but, we speak. <laughs> uh, but for example, I mean, on the cutthroat side, uh, and just understanding how weird stuff can be in 2008, uh, in the war in Georgia, the, the Georgians had bought because they were having, uh, issues then, I mean, the problem with all American stuff is that it's freaking expensive and it's there's usually way cheaper options from many other places than anything we're going to sell you. But people who are our allies or want to be our allies buy our stuff because it creates these relationships and sort of loyalty points and whatever. But um, the Georgians had bought uh, a small fleet of Israeli drones. Um, and this, I mean, granted, stuff has changed a lot in the past 15 years, but they had these drones. Uh, they were a critical tool of their very limited uh, military capacity. 
uh, at the time coming out of sort of a very failed post-Soviet period. Um, And it came out later that Israel had sort of swapped the codes for these drones to the Russians in advance of the Georgian war starting for some information on targeting, and I think it was targeting in Iran, something to do with the nuclear program. One of the things that they blew up to slow down the Iranian nuclear program, they sort of swapped these things with Russia for that information. So the second the war started, the drones like fell out of the sky. And, and, basically. For, and for anyone who's not in, in, immediately like already read into Georgia v Russia, we should explain like uh, this is like your big bad evil brother like right on your doorstep who's just. And another unprovoked to, yeah, war right. that we you could have seen coming, but everybody decided wouldn't happen, and then it happened. And but it was like, and, and again, would this have made a long term difference? No, of course not. But like, it was just it. Was, there were a lot it of questions a, about that when it happened for Georgia, and it was years later that the information about how that happened came out. But it just it shows the tactical thinking on the Israeli side of yes, they'll sell things to everybody. But there's none of that sort of ideological partnership that underpins these military sales in the way that we tend to think about it. Not always, but. Well, and also in the way that we tend to think about our alliance with Israel in yes. the Middle East. Well, and the, the I think we can all admit now, extremely outdated and archaic way that we provide baskets of money to Israel and Egypt every year from a long ago agreement about Middle East peace with which they then have to purchase American weapons. It's like this totally bizarre system of we give you tons of money, but you can only spend it to buy things from us. So it's like we're buying things from ourselves and handing them over for free. But whatever, it helped maintain the peace for a long period of time. Only now you have whatever the shit is with Israel. And like, again, I'm not an expert on this. I have my own strong opinions about the semblance of neutrality in a non-neutral world. But um, but there's also a problem with Egypt now because they've been becoming closer with Russia. Yeah. They've been, there was a, yeah. a, 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 there's been recent news about how they were secretly hoping to sell a bunch of stuff to Russia and were caught. <laughs> and they were like, damn it, you know. <sighs> so I think CC sucks and uh, uh, we really do need to reevaluate, especially given the incredibly low it's very clear influence we as a nation have in the region we tend to classify as the Middle East, but is obviously much broader than that. Yeah. Uh, we used to have incredible influence there and we no longer do. Uh, and we need a long evaluation of, does it matter? Like, yeah. are we really done? When we said we were done, are we really done? Are we really done? Do we want this region to be Russia's problem, Turkey's problem? Like we just got other things yeah. to do. Uh, if so, really, yeah. <laughs> then can we pull our crap out of it? Because we got a lot of stuff based there. And uh, if not, what are we actually doing yeah. to rebalance that equation and use the money that we spend on things there yeah. in a wiser way, most likely? Okay. So going back to these documents, which I think we've, I think we've uh, exhausted, but I just want to make sure yeah. there's not is, is there a practical impact that this has on I think Ukraine's that, defense right now I think the desired again I think the desired hope of the documents is to create doubt that Ukraine has a plan to win that Ukraine has the ability to win uh that Ukraine can win with limited arms blah 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 that we can supply them things fast enough just to create doubt and sort of fray okay. certainty more about and the thus the answer should be just give them everything. Stop with this, like, we don't need it right now. Like, just give them f- everything. And uh, 
stop drawing this process out mm. because it's just costing more Ukrainian, more Ukrainian lives. lives. And that is very clear yeah. in those documents. And I think it is, uh, I think one of the analyses I saw was chilling. Uh, and it is chilling that we have known since before February 2022 that this is how this would look and yeah. have failed to do enough to, to fix it, it. Yeah. and that we feel good about it. Um, is and we're lauding ourselves <laughs> for not doing enough. Yeah. And yes, again, still more than I thought we might. <laughs> um, but we're really at this point where we need to stop the dithering and just give them the stuff. And I don't know why the Defense Production Act hasn't been activated, but like, there is not enough munitions anywhere for anything, including for us. And now we know if there's any sort of actual physical conflict with anyone, nobody's ready for it. So like. Make the stuff. Sorry, just make the stuff. <laughs> is it? Is it? Um, this may be. This may be wrong, but I thought I read somewhere that our spending in Ukraine is now at a level similar to, or possibly even have exceeded the what we spent on the Iraq War. No, 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 no. I don't think so. No, um, I, I'd have to look up the most recent. Um, <sighs> the most recent things but essentially it's like the best money we've ever spent especially since it's not our guys yeah and it's not our stuff and like the direct impact to us i mean the biggest uh, the biggest problem with anything in iraq or afghanistan was it was our us. stuff getting churned up and our guys getting yeah. killed and we've made it very clear that's not how this is going to work right, right? right. <laughs> so yeah. like ukraine good luck let us know how it turns out but um uh the the value of value proposition is different of and and just like the percentage wise, what we are spending on supporting Ukraine um, versus any other defense spending we have done is like the best investment to de to destroy X percent of the Russian military arsenal is like the best way we could ever have spent. This Even money. if you just think of it as as not in terms of helping Ukraine win, but as decimating, weakening an adversary, weakening an yeah. adversary. yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of questions around that that yeah. we can discuss further, yeah. but like. Uh, there's uh, the the Institute for the Study of War has done um, some really good analysis on how this all plays out, um, uh, and a few other of the, a few of the other DC think tanks have done good sort of cost based analysis on this. It's hard to do in a non emotional way, but I think just the investment per outcome of Russian forces killed, Russian equipment destroyed, yeah. um, even in a very cynical. Uh, evaluation that yeah. this is the only thing that should matter. Uh, I'm checking. It's, it's I'm, good money spent. I'm checking these numbers now. That was totally, totally off. Seven hundred fifty-seven point eight billion was uh, Iraq, so nearly a trillion, and we're nowhere close to that with Ukraine. I think we're probably in the uh, total military is like forty-six point six billion so far. So and yeah, it's not. Is it's not three. So it's not close. We're not in the ballpark, but no. And, and for all the stuff that involves U.S. Yeah. things like the supply lines, the yeah. you know support lines, all of it is just so much more expensive than we're sending stuff to Ukraine. Good luck. So um, again, I do think it's in a in a practical way looking at it, it's very it's money very well spent. Um, you can argue that it's shouldn't be our strategic interest to care sure. about one side or the Those other of this, which some Republicans and Democrats are yeah. trying to argue. But um uh I I think the the money spent per outcome is still it looks very good. It's helpful to think about that way. Um even you know, which is not which is not the normal way of interpreting spending on Ukraine, right? It's like, well, are they going to win, and how long is it going to take, and how much money are we going to spend on it? But if we think about it in terms of weakening Russia, 
It's a completely different analysis. Yeah. And I mean, there's again, there's many different aspects of that that yeah. are not should not comfort us right. because yeah. of the costs on the Ukrainian side, yeah. obviously. But yeah. um, uh, in a very in, in the most cynical way possible, just right. looking at it that way. Yeah. It's money that is yeah. well spent. Yeah. And we could not with the same amount of money, we could not have achieved likely the same thing uh, on territory that is not our own. Right. Like yeah. it's just. Yeah, it's it, it, it's actually none an of this makes me comfortable. <laughs> an alignment of interest and values, American interests and values, in a way that doesn't often present itself uh, right that way. Yeah. And this is the whole like the takeaway from this and from everything in the last year should be just give Ukrainians the stuff, because as many of us have been writing since the beginning, uh, we will not get this chance again. Like we will yeah. never have a very capable nation of very capable fighters totally mobilized and willing to do this work yeah. of defeating Russia yeah. on their territory in the way that we have now. Like there will never be this opportunity again. So either we take it and we admit, yeah, the prospect of what comes next in Russia is fucking scary, but you know, actually maybe not as bad as this dynamic we've created where it's terrible for Russians inside Russia and it's terrible for everybody near Russia. Like, Maybe there's a better way for the terribleness to achieve yeah. change as opposed to just be terrible. I think we really need to get our heads around this and embrace there needs to be something different than doing round four of a Russian invasion of a neighbor and having not a good response to it. Okay, I want to turn to one of the other big uh, stories on the Russia front, which is the Wall Street Journal journalist. So last week... Uh, the State Department announced they'd officially designated Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich wrongfully detained by Russia. Now, wrongfully detained is a very specific um, term. Uh, it means that Gershkovich's case will be handled by the State Department's Office of Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs. Um, this designation puts uh, his case alongside Paul Whelan, who's been imprisoned in Russia for more than four years on espionage charges, as well as Trevor Reed and Brittany Greiner, uh, two recently released American prisoners in Russia who were also, quote unquote, wrongfully detained. Gershkovich was formally charged with espionage earlier this month. So um, help us understand the dynamics at play here. And we can talk about the specifics uh, that are salient and then maybe zoom out and explain why there's so much um, uh, energy being spent on this. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the, the most simplistic understanding of the thing is Russia has a lot less leverage than they used to have to get stuff that they want. And usually a pretty good way to get specific things such as people you want returned, returned is to grab somebody and trade them. Um, and, in in old fashioned ways, it used to have to be something worthy of the trade, right? So like, we'll trade you a spy for a spy, or maybe it used to be like 10 spies for a spy because we valued our people more than they valued their people, like whatever it was. Uh, but this whole thing has become very blurry as, especially as kind of influence machinery has become more geared toward this. But, you know, trading Brittany Griner for an incredibly sophisticated arms dealer who was responsible for the death of millions of people and could again be responsible for the deaths of millions of people 
Um, you can argue about whether or not that's a great policy-based decision. And obviously, like, I am not saying we that the United States of America, as a government, should not seek to free and return American wrongfully citizens. detained American citizens. Bernie Gorga was the American basketball player for everyone who's not caught yes. up on that yet. An American basketball player who was in Russia, I think, for basketball purposes mm-hmm. and uh, was detained with some sort of cannabis-related Mar- marijuana product. Uh, pen or something. Yeah, yeah nothing right. super serious, but right. illegal in Russia. Yep. Uh, and it became this whole year-long process to uh, try to get her released. But also should be no- noted, the Russians are usually very specific about how they go about these processes of grabbing. Once you're yoinked, you're kind of screwed, and you mm. have to be tried and convicted. And only once you are convicted will they trade you. So it's not like... They're going to arrest somebody. You know what I mean? Like, if somebody was arrested, but a week later they might get out. Like, once you're in the thing, it stinks. And yes, this point seems to have been made slightly more, especially after the Paul Whelan thing. Like, all you guys who made some friend online and started traveling to Russia because you thought it was a great idea because the ladies like you or whatever. Paul Whelan was who, just for context, for listeners' context? Uh, I'm going to forget which of the stories is which, but essentially started traveling to Russia, thought it was a fun idea, uh, was just there as far as I know for pleasure purposes, like he would visit, he kind of enjoyed the scene, but was essentially completely set up, the FSB broke into his room and was like, here's this USB drive we found of, you know, shit that you're stealing. And it was obviously just like some bullshit, um, but has been detained for years okay. uh, because of this. And they don't seem particularly forward leaning on letting him go. Trading nor, him for, nor has yeah. it seemed to be always a top priority for it's a very strange. The story is a very strange story. So can, but, can, can I ask you, yeah. that, because um, I actually think this is interesting. The difference between, let's just say, then and now yeah. in terms of the way hostage diplomacy might work or in terms of like Russia grabbing someone and trading them for someone, that, that the calculation maybe – Let's say in the days before the internet, mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least in the day in the days before social media, uh, the calculation might have been a not even transparent to the public in the first place. Yep. I.e., yes. we don't know who's been caught, we don't know who's being traded because all of that happens behind a curtain uh, of national yep. security, right? Um, and therefore, the calculations that are being made about whether a person is worth it or not uh, are being uh, are are much more sort of an 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 analysis of interests as opposed to now with the proliferation of social media and everything, everybody knows everything every minute, there's a, an enormous uh, political lever that is deployed as the moment we know an American has been captured and that, that is actually shaping some of these decisions in these, in, in the latest cases. Yes. And again, I'm, not saying that these things should not have, like, obviously sure. Brittany yeah, Griner yeah, should I'm have been brought home. Obviously Trevor Reed should have been brought now. home. Obviously Evan Gerskowitz right. should be brought home. Like, obviously we should get Paul Whelan out. We cannot leave American citizens, de- like, detained for completely spurious purposes right. in dictatorships. Like, we can't do that. Um, and again, should people be smarter, celebrities who decide to take the money and go to Russia, mm. about going to places where you can be wrongfully detained and become a national security crisis for your nation? Yes, you should be smarter about that. But I'm not, like... I'm not right. criticizing right, right, right. the totally. process to get these people out because totally. obviously you have but to do it. But the process has changed. And the Evan Gerskovich cases, it is, it has changed and there used to be the presumption of always, it is better if no one knows. 
because then maybe you can actually get the deal done faster. Mm. Then once it becomes public, where then it has to go through the official, well, there must be the show trial, and eventually the pilots will get sent home, but like in the meantime, it will be the circus, and you mm. must be in the circus and part of the machinery of propaganda. Um, and it's very much the same Soviet shit. Like, you're in the machinery of the propaganda, and they're going to use you as long as it's useful for them, and it's not pleasant, and it's terrible. So I, I think now there has been a much more forward-leaning approach to support, I mean, you know, huge outcry about these detentions. And I understand that. Um, And I think the the Gerskovich case is different, obviously, because he is a journalist. Um, He is, he was a licensed, like he had the official approvals to be a journalist operating in Russia. He was there on an official journalistic visa, you know. Uh, He was approved to be there as a journalist. and made the decision to continue to keep reporting in an obviously fraught environment when many others left and are covering Russia from outside now. Um, And again, you can argue about how he made that decision and whether you think it's wise or not. I think the, the, I mean, the, it certainly seems the motivation for doing this was an honest journalistic one, which is I can be there and do this when there's so little information getting out from Russia that we actually see and know like what is happening, what does it mean? Uh, And I should, like I have a duty as a journalist to do that. And I think we can all understand that motivation and support it. Right. Um, So I think it was a brave decision to do this, to try to do this work when you knew it could be this problem. I think there's always also then that like little aspect of naivete is not the right word, but you as a foreign reporter working in Russia believe that you won't get caught in the machine. You mm. kind of have to for your own psychological right. defense, right? Yeah. And you see what happens to Russian journalists who step over the line. They fall out a window or get yeah. shot in front of their apartment building or end up in prison or 125 other ways of being killed, as many of them have discovered. Um, and you know that there's that cost. And you yeah. just assume that that's not going to come. Because truly, they usually do leave foreigners alone. They'll chase you out. They'll take away your credentials. But, you know, the assumption of having more protection would not previously have been the wrong one. But I think this understanding now that this is, it's like a sign of weakness and desperation from the Russian side, Mm. which is there's, most foreigners have left. There is less of a pool of people to potentially yoink and trade and leverage. So whoever they can get their hands on, they're going to get their hands on. It does leave people who previously would have been left alone more exposed. Should he have known that? I don't know. Yeah, like, I'm sure he yeah. he understood the potential risks. Uh, again, I'm not I'm not saying that he was dumb for being there. He was doing his job. Yeah. And but I think the fact that he's a journalist is important, and we should note that when we're discussing it. Yeah. Does, um, does the visibility aspect, um, you know, play into who the Kremlin uh, decides to go after? Is that is the profile of the person, the visibility of the person? A factor. I'm very curious how this case is going to play out because, truthfully, and and not an insult on Gerskovich, but he was like one of the most junior reporters of that team from that group, right? Like he was the newest one. Um, He had good access to things. He'd been in Russia a long time, working for other outlets. But for the Wall Street Journal, he was not the most senior of the team. Um, uh, So I think it was sort of an availability. Like he was there, Mm. so he presented himself as a target. Um, But I think this. What I'm worried about is there's been this tremendous outpouring of support, obviously, from 
all the other yeah. Moscow contingent of foreign reporters, people who, yeah. are, who have been there recently, people who have been there before. Many of the reporters that you know and love covering politics and other things at some point did a stint in Moscow because it was like a rite of passage, right. essentially. Right. So there's been tons of support for him, zillions of social media posts, zillions of statements from organizations mm-hmm. and things, all of which has inflated the value of him as an object of trade and, and possession. It's more, he's more an a symbol now. Lot. He's more a symbol than a, yeah. Which makes it more fraud, which right. means getting him back will be harder. And yeah. it's like this, and again, I'm not going to tell anybody to shut up and not talk about this guy. If he's your friend, obviously you're going to talk about the fact that he's been wrongfully detained. But it's this terrible machinery that the Russians know so well and they exploit it so well of like, once you're trying to free a person, they can just exploit it and, more and more and, and get, more. And get more for their... And it's freaking yeah. terrible. And um, it's terrible for Gorskovich. We're all still a little bit traumatized about uh, Khashoggi and like, you know, bad things happening to American journalists. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just a terrible machine and the Russians use it extremely well. And it is extremely... I think we're in a, a not great place with this detention currently they haven't given yeah. him consular access no one has been able to feel like yeah. they've heard he's fine but is that true who knows yeah um it's not a great i think that's not a great situation to be in and it's not great for him because he must know that he's going to stay there until yeah. they get the thing that they want and yeah. what is the thing that they want they and i just they might not even know yet yeah. Well, maybe they shoot for the stars. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, let me ask Who you do we need one back? more procedural. <laughs> let me ask you one more procedural question about this because when Griner was detained in February 2022, uh, a little over a year now, it took more than 10 weeks um, before she was declared "quote unquote" wrongfully detained. Before she got that label, what does the speed tell you about the changes in how the U.S. is treating Russia? I mean, I think this was a different case, and I think the speed is. Um, it was different because he's a journalist, okay. and I, I'm not, not again, not saying sure. this was good, bad, whatever. I just think it's an American journalist who was operating there as a journalist. We certainly know that we do not use journalists as yeah. cover for espionage, right. so they will have great comfort in saying the detention for espionage is right, which is what they did essentially. And I think doing that quickly. Um, is important because it creates this different process of yeah. how we engage and who is in charge and resources we can expend. And usually that process is slower for an average citizen, right? Yeah. Where they will go through the appeal. Like, you know, did anybody really think Brittany Griner should have been arrested? No, but you ha- kind of have to go through the process yeah. of evaluating the thing first before you do the thing. And I think that has gotten quicker, especially in Russia, where now it's very clear that this is just like <laughs> the, yeah. the pretense of law no longer really exists. Um, but it's awful. And I just think, you know, we look at this. We have been looking previously at the detention of foreigners in Russia and the process used to get them back differently than we have looked at the detention of opposition or, you know, Russian journalists or whatever, uh, and their trials and show trials and convictions and sentencing to gulag. Uh, we've looked at, we've looked at and evaluated those things differently. And I think everybody needs to stop separating those things. Mm -hmm. Yes. It is different for Russians. Yes. They put themselves at far more risk. Yes. Everything like their whole family is vulnerable. Everything is vulnerable, but I think we have to stop assuming there will be different rules for foreigners um, than we used to think, Um, at least for now, because Putin has limited things to pull on. And this is going to be one of the things. And that sucks. Yes. Like I, too, would like to have journalists who have access to Russia and can tell us what is going on. Um, 
but uh, I think we need to protect our people, and it just takes so much. It takes so much to preserve their safety while in detention, ensure that they're healthy, ensure they're not in bad situations. Like, are these guys getting tortured? Hopefully not, but it's not unknown in Russia. Um, And information that could potentially be extracted from them that is of value to the Russians that has nothing to do with them being a spy or not, obviously not, but like, they just know useful things and have useful contacts and they will, the Russians will just talk at him and talk at him and talk at him. And, you know, does anybody want to be in this situation? No. Yeah. And I think we just need to really look at this differently than we have been because the point that we're at with Russia is no longer the normal one where you get right. to go to Russia and go to the Banya <laughs> and hang out with your bros and bike around. Like it's just not the thing yeah. anymore. And I think initially there was kind of this, I think part of the machinery that is supporting Evan has also made this initially made this about the wrong issue. He is a journalist. He was detained for espionage. This is not right acceptable full stop period it it doesn't matter if he was a good fair open-hearted loves russia journalist and there was like all this context being like i don't care if his reporting was fair to the kremlin or not like i just he's a journalist he's been detained he is not a spy we need to get him out period end of story i think we need to stay very focused on that and not make it about something else yeah um because what if it was a journalist who was viewed as more critical. Right, exactly. We, that, that, <laughs> so we're not yeah, going to protect totally, them. Of course we're going to protect them. Totally right. So I think all of this, it's really challenging. And again, every single person, every American, every Estonian, every whatever else um, detained in Russia who is at risk needs to be yeah. given this attention and gotten back yeah. however we can do it. Yeah. Um, but it's so awful to be in that process because once you're in it, there is no quick way out. Um, the organizations that you worked for with, ever partnered with, are aligned with, are under more scrutiny and then have all these challenges and like, ah. it's just not the thing you want to end up in. Yeah. And getting you back is never simple. It's yeah. not that everybody won't be trying. The Twitter posts aren't going to help. All those things are still going to be done. I mean, yes, post about your friends. That's fine. But it's this whole process is terrible and psychologically damaging for anybody who ends up inside it. And it is enormously hard to explain how bad that is or even what it might feel like or look like, even if you're not the guy being fully tortured or poisoned or whatever else, um, as many of the Russians have faced when in detention um, for similar charges. But um, don't, don't end up in this situation anymore. Like we now know this should be for us. This should be a line. Like nobody is safe. It takes tremendous amount of resources to, to, to secure the, the freedom and safety of these people. And we just need to be more cautious in how we are advising our citizens about how they can access places like Russia, China, elsewhere. Um, Cause we're just in a different phase of yeah. geopolitics right now. Okay, let's. Uh, I want to ask you a question about Finland real quick, and then, sure. and then, uh, and then a really juicy one um, from a listener. Um, so, very briefly on Finland. Earlier yep. this month, uh, um, they joined NATO woo officially. Woo. Woo woo. 
Oh, we need some sound effects there. Fourth Baltic state. They don't like it when you call them that, but I'm going to call them that. You can be both Nordic and Baltic at the same time. Um, no, this is this is a huge deal. Yes. Huge deal. Congratulations, Finland. And NATO now like quadrupled the number of icebreakers it has yeah. because Finland, the Finnish Navy actually has icebreakers yes. and the rest of us don't. But we had like two functional icebreakers in the entire American Coast Guard, I think. Wow. But uh, I know it's just they do things we don't do like Arctic warfare. But um, so let's explain to people. This is huge. From like first principles, why this is huge? Why is this a big deal? Yeah. Because like, you know, where is Finland anyway? Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> so it's an interesting question. You know, Finland. Uh, uh, if you're if you're vaguely, is it Carmen? Who's the Carmen San Diego? Right? I was yeah. like Carmen Randa. No, that's not right. Where if you're in if, the it's, world, it's is... one of those three fingers in the top that's <laughs> reaching out from Russia above Europe, but you're never really sure which one is in which order. Finland is the one that shares the incredibly long border with Russia right. uh, above the Baltic Sea. Right. So if you're going up from Poland, it's, you know, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Baltic Sea, <laughs> Finland. Um, uh, Just look it up on a map real quick. <laughs> Just pull it up on Google Maps it's and look really at where it is. really far to the north. A yeah. lot of the country is not densely populated. Uh, there's a lot of islands and fjords and uh, other type things. But um, it's a very unique – so basically, you know, Finland has a very unique history uh, in Europe uh, with Russia. Um, if for fun, you can you can look up and read about how Finland absolutely kicked the pants out of Russia in the Winter War. It's a story we all love and adore. Um, but basically, you know, during the Cold War, Finland maintained this idea of, you know, Finlandization, uh, of neutrality. So they weren't in NATO – they were a place where it's there's a reason that Trump did his meeting with Putin there. Like it's this in very Finland. it's this vague historical reference to neutrality. Um, and while that has not been the case for Finland in a long time, uh, Finland is a very serious defense uh, nation. Um, uh, they do uh, serious uh, they have serious defense capabilities. They have very large military reserves that are trained. Um, they have a lot of capabilities that other NATO members maybe don't have so much of except Norway because they're right on because the they're Russian right on the border, border with, with Russia. Russia. <laughs> they're very aware of this. And so like the entire post cold war period, they have still been training guys and do, and they've been lately building a long fence along the border with Russia um, because Russia has done helpful things like weaponized migration and shove migrants across the borders oh, into all wow. these other European nations. Yeah, it's really, it's really nice. So, I mean, Finland has, what I would say is this is good for a number of reasons. One, it's a serious contributor to NATO defensive capabilities. Uh, they bring a trained army. They have an incredibly sophisticated uh, defense industry in Finland. So they're bringing lots of capabilities um, to NATO that are great for us. Like, it's a great addition to the stuff we have so far. So that's important. Um, uh, and the things that, like, they have icebreakers. Like, what? The icebreakers? Yeah. Like, the, like, like ships that break yeah, through yeah, the no, ice. Yeah, yeah, like, no. Like, they have a lot of them. Like, a lot of them. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, we yeah. don't. No, but they make really cool ones, and I think we've been trying to buy. So we literally have two. I'm not, I'm not joking. Why do we have only two? Because we haven't needed them. But <laughs> and like I think now we're hoping that I'm global warming, I'm you know, what a finish takes care of the problem. Like they're pretty cool. But wow. um, the Finns are cool. So I, I mean, the bottom line is they have their head screwed on straight on Russia. The reason they haven't joined NATO thus far has been the assumption that when the Russians come, they're better off defending themselves than needing to wait on the alliance, basically. Yeah. Uh, and that calculation has changed um, very recently. It's been sort of a slowly percolating idea in Finland 
but the, the calculation finally tipped over because of Russian behavior, which is like, actually, the thing that's important is this bigger security guarantee, not just the fact that you can defend yourselves. Was so, the hesitation previously because of fear of provoking Russia? Was no, that a factor well, or not? That may have at some point been a factor, but really it was this belief that we've defended ourselves from Russia before. We can do it better ourselves again. Okay. Um, and, you know, it used to be if you were in Estonia or wherever and uh, people were asking, like after Estonia was in NATO and people would ask, yeah, so what's the plan if, like, mm. Russia invades mm. here? Like, whatever general was in charge of U.S. Army Europe at the time would sort of laugh and be like, well, you better hope the Swedes and the Finns come because it'll take NATO two weeks to make a decision about how to move stuff out of Germany, <laughs> right? Like, and it was sort of a joke, but not really um, because the Swedes and the Finns are very capable uh, military forces. Um, and the Finns in particular have this deep culture of preparation and mobilization and training reserves and civil reserves and how these things work within society um, it, that is so important. Like the Estonians are the only ones that come close with the NATO of who has a similar mindset. Um, uh, but I mean, like to the extent that most Finnish exercises, mobilizations of reserves, special operations, things, et cetera are classified because they don't want people to observe how they are they right. how they have been doing these things. So again, a very serious ally to add. I mean, it was an ally of NATO anyway, a partner of NATO. But bringing them into the alliance is fantastic news in particular because and like Sweden membership still pending alas because the Turks and the Hungarians are absurd. But um Hopefully this will be done after Erdogan's re-election, which is inevitable in May, I think. Um, so hopefully Sweden will be uh, welcomed very quickly, uh, too. But it kind of, even without Sweden, but we're gonna we're waiting for Sweden, it then redefines, um, again, if you're looking at the map, how we can defend the Baltics, yeah. uh, which has been sort of a dangling piece of uh, NATO for a long time. Uh, our concept of Baltic Sea security, because now we have more NATO members on the top and the right, bottom of the right. Baltic Sea, um, and how we can really uh, shore up our concept of defense for all parts of the alliance in ways we've never really addressed. Like, we kind of left the Balts on the hook <laughs> a bit. And I think after um, February 2022, this whole idea that it would be fine if Russia invaded and we eventually kicked them back out, uh, kind of dissipated because we know what that looks like now and it sucks and nobody wants to spend yeah. billions of dollars rebuilding all the infrastructure that has been destroyed uh, and, you know, people die. So this idea that every part of the alliance was not actually being equally defended um, needs to be addressed and bringing in these new allies, hopefully Sweden soon, but Finland now, um, changes how we can make calculations of air defense in the region, which has been a big yeah. deficit for a long time um of force deployment of how we can do naval deployments uh, of how we are looking more holistically at this whole arc on the western side of russia um and how we're looking at the arctic and everything else it's really really important and significant and like it's i think it would also note uh you know the very young not unpretty prime minister of finland this young lady not unpretty she's very pretty yep. uh and has been sort of famous for being young and like clubbing and, and being a normal person in addition to being the prime minister of finland you know her party just 
not lost the election, but did not win the election. These parliamentary systems, who wins and who loses is hard to quantify. Sana but they Marin. Were, they Sana were, Marin. Yes, they were not yeah. the number one. Her party was not the number one party in the country. And for outsiders, uh, initially, there was this sort of panic of like, oh, shit, is this going to disrupt the NATO thing or the, the tremendous Finnish support for Ukraine? Uh, is this going to disrupt either of these things? And what was so funny to me is for Finland, it didn't matter if you were the far right party, the more nationalist party, the middle sort of centrist uh, liberally parties, the far left parties. The one thing they all agreed on was actually we're ready for NATO now we're for and NATO. we're going to continue supporting Ukraine because fuck the Russians. And <laughs> this was so remarkable to see that yeah. even though Finland is debating issues of you know, austerity and balanced budgets and like, how do we get our spending under control? The things that are not on the table are these very important questions of defense and how we are supporting Ukraine wow. to win the war against the Russians. And it's just, it's so refreshing, yeah. <laughs> frankly, compared to the rest of how, how the rest of us are arguing about yeah. these things. Um, so I think it's, I think it'll be a really good boost. This, the, the perspective of the countries that have shared a border with Russia for low these many years is just different because they under, they have they, to understand, understand the threat in a different way. Yeah. So I think this is going to be a big boost. And the people to the seem alliance. to understand the relationship yes. with Russia far more than, for example, the American people understand our very our, realistic about yeah. what this looks like. And again, the the whole winter war thing is like yeah, a right. source of tremendous pride for yeah. for most Finns. Um, but they are a serious, uh, like I said, a serious security-minded nation, and this sort of fabric of uh, mobilization, uh, civil defense, is sort of built into their system in a way that most of us haven't paid attention to very recently, yeah. uh, in a way that's super helpful and smart. And so I think that has informed their NATO membership, how they are supporting Ukraine. Um, but I think this is going to be great for NATO. I yeah. think it's... Um, a big serious military with real capabilities joining us. Huzzah! And I will Putin's huzzah not further. Happy about it. <laughs> Putin not happy about it at all. Uh, and I'm going to be even more happy when this when the Swedes join too as number 32, and hopefully Ukraine is number 33 as soon as we get our act together on that. So, um, it's good. It's good. It's good for the alliance. Right now? Uh, no. I mean, would American support for figuring out how to do this more quickly? Help. Really, really yeah. help. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, the French and the Germans traditionally hold the. Eh, I'm like... not sure about that crown, and I think they still have it. So, mm. uh, it matters that we're not being more vocal about what this solution looks like, or what some sort of expanded partnership would look like, or whatever the thing yeah. is. I think the good news is that, um, in a way that we have not been serious about in a very long time. Um, we have advanced interoperability support. So this terrible military term of joint interoperability, meaning you, the American force X can integrate with Finnish force yeah. X or French force X and have the same rules of engagement, the same systems of communication. Like you can actually operate together as foreign forces with relative ease because you have the same yeah. system, same rules, same understanding, same cultures, blah, blah, blah. So this terrible term of joint interoperability, which is often a thing that is used as an excuse for why we do not integrate people into NATO more quickly, in addition to things like corruption. Uh, um, the Ukrainians have elevated their interoperability with NATO mm. 
tremendously mm. in the past year yeah. because they're being trained by the Brits and yeah. by us and yeah. by whoever else. Because they're um, using all of our they're tanks using all and of weapons. our weapon systems, yeah, right? Um, but even but on a cultural level as well, the fact that they're being they're doing more training with NATO uh, partner forces on intelligence collection and uh, you know how we communicate on those issues on uh, you know targeting support things like that. There's been a lot more. Um, interoperability happening, which is important in terms of By getting, necessity. getting closer yeah. to how the practicalities of this could eventually be accomplished. So there's good things happening, but this the political will thing of how does it happen? What do the lines look like? I mean, there's questions, obviously. But um, I think we need to be more forward-leaning about how we're looking at this because what we should want after whatever the war is ends is Ukraine and NATO as fast as possible because um, I want that military in our alliance and not not in our alliance. Um, and I think the there's so much pressure already for the idea that it would be better if Ukraine stays out and is sort of a separate thing and is building its own structures. And while I get that in some aspects... Uh, as a as a diehard believer in NATO is an absolutely essential tool of American defense and protection and builds security for the world and for the region and is part of our prosperity and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I want Ukraine in that and not next to it being friendly. I want it in the thing all the way. Um, these guys are amazing. Their soldiers are amazing. Their technicians are amazing. Yeah. Um, also, just from a even from a cynical yeah. and interested standpoint, like we've we're very invested now, and so right, we, the, the, it would be stupid to do all this and not, not finish it. Yeah, right, <laughs> so, right. yeah, I just it, that needs to get done, and yeah. I, the political will to be clear about how this happens yeah. does not yet exist. Um, and it needs well, not from us anyway. It and it needs to. Um, we need to we need to get this done. It needs to not be a question or the Russians will just keep poking at it until, you know. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.